What's up, family? Thank you for tuning in to the Dream Nation podcast. My name is Casanova. I'll be your host, and I'm excited to be bringing to you entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and trailblazers from around the world. Stay locked in with us because we're about to go on a journey that will change your life. What's up, Dream Nation? We are back again, and we have on the line one of the most unique and influential people that I would say I've seen in the past couple years. And so without further ado, please help me in welcoming my brother, Mr. Steve Sims, to the show. Steve, you want to go ahead and say what's up to Dream Nation? Hey, how you doing? It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I always like to give the proper introduction. And so if you've listened to the show, you know that I often describe entrepreneurs just like us as superheroes. Why is because we're constantly putting on capes and we're trying to fly around the world and and solve all the problems that we come across. So before you've been featured in things like Forbes and before you've had one of the the world-renowned companies of creating experiences for people, before you've created the company Bluefish, If we could take it back to when you were just a young boy, tell me, who is Steve Sims? Well, funny enough, he's the same guy that he is now, even though there's been a lot of transformations and money and position and and success and failure. I'm still the inquisitive little ignorant Irish lad from East London. Um, As a little kid, we, we go after things because we don't have the intelligence to tell us we can't achieve it. We have this... You say about superhero, my wife says that my super strength is ignorance. I don't see the ability to fail. I don't see the thing that is going to hurt me. I don't see that it's going to make me poor. I just go for it. And as a little kid, you're allowed to do those things. You know, as little kids, we put on a cape and we go, where's Superman? And all our parents go, yes, you are. And then when you get to like 16, 17, 18 year old and you put that cape on, they say, you go, I'm Superman. And people look at you and go, you're a twat. You're an idiot. Take the cape off. You know, we're taught to get realistic. We're taught to get real. We're taught to smarten up. I just never did. And I was very lucky about that. So I always envisioned, I want to do things. I want to achieve this. I want to, you know, why can't I? And my passion, my persistence would overcome all those naysayers in the corner that said you can't do that. So as an Irish lad, growing up, the age of 15, left school early because, you know, school didn't grasp me, became a bricklayer because my dad owned a construction firm. And I just grew. I just I just kept on taking what the world was giving me and going home disgruntled. And there was this one day, and it was funny, we all have these pivotal moments. You told me about your history before this and you told me about all of those dark disparaging graphic horrible moments which were the pivots for you to become the man you are and you've got to ask yourself it's not nice but you've got to ask yourself had I not been you know neck deep in shit had I not had those horrible moments would I be flying today and quite often most of the time it's no And there was this one moment that I was like 17 years old. And this was not a good time in my life, if you met me, because I'm a big lad. You know, I ride bikes. I got tattoos, piercings, you know, all that kind of stuff. I thought to be the lad that I needed to be at that age, I needed to be tough. I needed to be able to smack someone down. I needed to be the hardest person in the bar. I was that guy. But the trouble is, it wasn't who I was. 
it was the cloak that I had to wear to survive in East London. You talked about South Chicago. Let's be blunt. You had to kind of like carry a bit of swagger to exist in those days. I had the swagger. You, you did. It was, it was what, as I always say, it was what your zip code put on you. You had to be the person. You know, you wouldn't have been that person had you been in Beverly Hills 90210 or something. So you adopted, as I call it, the zip code swagger. And, you know, I was in East London. And so I had this kind of, I'm an East London boy. I'm tough. You know, you don't mess with me. But inside, I was confused. And there was this one day I was on the building site. My dad had the contract. So he was the governor of the site at the time. My, my uncle was there, his brother, his kids, so my cousins. And at the end of the building site was my 80-year-old granddad still laying bricks in the pouring rain. And I had this epiphany that this was my lifeline. This was it. I saw me in my young, young teens. And then I saw my 80-year-old self. And I went up to my dad, my granddad, during the coffee break time. You know, we called it tea break in England. But, you know, during tea break, I went up to him. He's wet. He's closest to the, to the little mobile heater trying to warm up before he goes back out there again. This guy's 80 years old. And I went over to him like an ignorant little kid that I was at the time. And I went, granddad, granddad, did you ever think you'll be doing this at your age? Now, in fairness, my granddad was a much bigger paddy than me. And I'm surprised I didn't get a punch in the nose. Because it was quite an insulting question when you really think about it. Oh, yeah. But he didn't even look at me. He just stopped sipping his tea at the time. And he just said, if you don't quit today, you'll be me tomorrow. And I was like, shit, you know? And it was one of those moments where the birds stopped singing. You couldn't hear a crack in the tea hut. It was total sight. It was a total breakthrough moment. So we came out of the tea hut. Everyone's walking towards a building site. As I say, it's a rainy day in, in London. And I'm like, dad, dad. And he's like, what do you want? I went, I've got to quit. He's like, why you got to quit? And I said, because I went in there and I saw granddad. Granddad was in the corner. I went up to him and he said, if you don't quit today, you'll be me tomorrow. And as I said that, my granddad walked behind me because my dad looked at him. He looked at him. And they must have known. Now, we came from a thick Irish family. You know, not the most sensitive-natured people in the planet. Yeah. And my dad just looked at me and he went, we're light-handed. You finish Friday. And I went, all right, all right. And so I did a few more days on the building site, and then I quit. My mum, my mum, we've never really had a good relationship, sadly. But she always thought I was turning my back on the family business. And I remember her saying, you think you're better than us. And I remember in the deep heart of that argument saying, no, no, no. I just think I'm better than this for me. You know, I think I'm better than this. I want to fly. I want to be. And my dad was very, go on, get out there, make mistakes, scrape your knees and get back up. And he had that. But my mum, she kind of turned her back on me from that day. And I just went out and failed a lot. Tried a lot of jobs that I failed at. Tried a lot of positions to be in that weren't built for me. But the funny thing is, I'm and this is on video, isn't it? This is not okay. So I'm talking to a young, good-looking, sharp black lad from South Chicago. <laughs> we couldn't be more different. Right. Yet there's a DNA that makes us exactly the same. Okay? We're those entrepreneurs that go, eh, this ain't for me. I'm going to develop 
what's for me, you know? And it doesn't matter the stories. We can sit here and drop names. We can drop zip codes. We can drop stories. But as different as we are as entrepreneurs, we're exactly the same. We're the Hogwarts kids that go, ah, this isn't the world for us. We make our world. And so we're actually very similar. As all entrepreneurs, we know that we know when we don't fit more often than when we know we do fit. And we constantly drive and strive to find out where do we fit. And when we fit, we don't fit well, we conquer. And that's what entrepreneurs do. I love it. I love so much about that story. The one thing that struck me is when you said that your mom was not on board with it, your dad was. So now you are out there, you're trying to figure out your own path. And you came from being, you know, a biker and, and all these other things. So I'm imagining your environment wasn't conducive to you now trying to make this switch. Right. So where did you where did you find your strategy, your tactic? Was it a book? Was it a seminar? Was it a mentor? What was that first step to let you know that, listen, even though I'm not doing the brick lane anymore, I am on the right path. <laughs> it's it's funny because we've already alluded to it earlier. You can find the greatest wisdom from some of the strangest places. You could find it from a conversation being held with a valet boy. You could ha have it, you know, kind of like shock you to your knees when someone says something as a barista in a coffee house. You don't have to be talking to Tony Robbins or Jay Abraham to be getting that wisdom. It can come from the most unworldly places. It can, it come, can come from the heart. podcast right now. It, you could be here in this pivotal moment now. You may just not recognize it, but one day it's going to bite you and then you're going to realize you heard it from this. So yes, you're right. I actually realized it from the front door of a dodgy nightclub in Hong Kong. Okay. Cause that's where I started working. You see, you're right. I was a, I was a bricklayer and a biker from East London. Now the funny thing is I don't own a car. I collect motorcycles. I have about 12 of them. Um, I still don't own a car. I still walk around in black t-shirt. For anyone watching wow. this video, you know, they can see the, the piercings in my eye and, you know, I've got tats over and stuff like that. So I haven't really changed much from there, but I didn't know where I fit. But I did remember one thing. And bearing in mind, there's a big difference between me and you in the age gap, but also the availability gap. You see, kids today from birth, the one-year-old today, is saturated by videos and YouTube and anything they want from podcasts. Now, I grew up in the 80s and 90s where we didn't even have the web. You know, we read the newspaper and we saw the news at five o'clock. We had to wait 24 hours before we knew what was going on. Today, something happens in the world, you get an alert and everyone's talking about it on Instagram and TikTok within seconds. Right. So we've got a lot more saturation to information today. We've also, that's a double-edged sword. We've got a lot more saturation to how inferior it can make us feel, how inadequate we feel. How many times do you look at the Instagrams and these Instagurus and you go, oh, that guy's got it made because he's got that car. Oh, she's prettier than me. Oh, he's richer than me. Oh, he's smarter than me. Oh, look how connected he is, you know? It's a one second, one nanosecond picture that can make you feel inferior. And let's be blunt. How many people are leaning up against cars they don't own? Right. How many people are posting pictures of them with celebrities that they bumped into? I live in Hollywood. 
hell, all you got to do is hang out at the local Starbucks for like 10 minutes. Someone's going to walk in, grab a selfie, and then you can bullshit your way for the next month that they're your best mates. <laughs> but that's what's happening today. Now, I didn't have it. And if you think about it, that was a good thing for me. But someone, and I don't know who, said the age-old words of, you are the combination of the five people you hang out with. And I looked at my five best buddies, and two of them are still great mates. One of them was the best man at my wedding and is still my dear friend. I remember that my mates were broke-ass bikers. So what did that make me? Right. So I talked my way into getting a job, and this is a whole different story. I talked my way into getting a job in Hong Kong for a trainee stockbroker. Now, the gift of the Irish is that we can talk forever. They say we can talk the legs off a mushroom. You know, we can just <laughs> yeah, talk forever. That's the first time I've heard that one. <laughs> that's, hey, that's Paddy's for you. You know, an, an Irish Londoner can talk his way into everything. And so I managed to talk my way into this job. They flew me out to Hong Kong. I arrived on the Saturday. I got drunk on the Saturday with them all, got drunk on the Sunday with them all because Irish people are qualified very well at doing that. I did orientation on the Monday and I was fired on the Tuesday. Okay. So I'm now in Hong Kong. What did you get no fired for? <laughs> because I'd lied on every <laughs> single part of my resume. Um, How did they find out? It was so early. Trust me, you know, when I walk in and I'm there as a trainee stockbroker and they go, do you have a Series 7, which is the, the certificate you need to have? I went, no. They went, do you have a Series 11, which is the American version? I went, no. They realized I'd bullshitted all the way through my resume. And I said, look, I just wanted, I took a shot. I took a gamble. And they said, well, you know, you can't be here because you've got to have these regulations. And I'm kind of guessing that you don't really know the first thing about how stock markets work, do you? And I went, no, not really, but I'd seen Wall Street. And so I thought, you know, I knew everything from that. And so they, we all laughed and they went, we got to let you go, man. You took a shot, you, take, you took a punt on it, but you can't be here. And I was like, eh, I tried, you know? And, you know, I still had all my limbs. I was still intact. I wasn't bloody, you know? But now I'm in Hong Kong with no friends. No friends. Nobody that knows me. And again, from those dark moments comes the great lights. Right. Actually, that's a good quote. I should remember that later. You can have it. But I remember <laughs> that I was feeling quite shitty, wondering what I was going to do. And I was in a bar, getting drunk, didn't know what I was going to do, you know, didn't know who, how I was going to get a job in a completely different country where I didn't know anyone. And there was a bit of trouble inside in the bar. And the, the Mama San, the owner of the bar, the, 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 the Chinese lady that owned this club, she came out to me. And I remember her pointing to me. She, and she said to me, she went, she said, your people in there are causing trouble. If you don't go and see them and sort it out, my people will get involved and it, they will get hurt. And I'm thinking, who's my people? You know, I'm here on my own. So I stuck my head in there. And of course, you know, you worked out already. There's these three white guys you know, on the bar, kind of caused a bit of stink. And of course, they were my people. <laughs> I mean, I'm going, they're my people. And I looked at her and I went, I'm going to nothing to do with that. I don't know who they are. And she said, if you sort of, now I'm, I'm a, I'm a biggish fella, you know, I'm 240 pounds of, of ugly, you know, so I fit the mold very well on that of a, of a biker. So she said, if you don't go and sort it out, my people will come out with sticks and hurt them. 
And so I still wanted nothing to do it because I wasn't finding anything that had any call to action to want me to get involved. There was no perk or benefit for me until she said the next words. And I'll pay for your drinks. All right, we have a deal, you know, because I had no money, no job. And now I was going to be able to get blindly drunk on her bill. So I went over, sat down with the guys. I went, hey, boys, here's the deal. You can walk out the front door. Uh, your bar tab, walk out the front door. You know, you've had a good night. Come back tomorrow and I'll buy your first beers. Or you can stay here, keep getting Larry, and a bunch of guys are going to come out of that curtain in a minute with sticks and you're not going to see Tuesday. So that's it. I'm going back to my beer now. I hope you made the right decision. I hope I'll see you walking out the front door in a few minutes. So I went back and she's like, what's happened? Well, I went, it's sorted. I didn't know what was going to happen. I sat down, carried on drinking my whiskey. The guys walked out the front door and they're like, oh, thanks, man. Thank you very much, Dan. I'm like, oh, that's good. So that night, she said to me, you be dormant. And I'm like, well, I don't know. And she's like, I pay you this. I'm thinking, oh, okay, I get all the drink I want and I get paid. This was not a high-class establishment, okay? <laughs> but uh, and, the, and I was like, great, I've got a job now. Here was the dumb thing. The following, guy, following night, these guys came back. And I turned around to her and I went, hey, I promised these guys a free beer. And she's like, well, you promised them, so it's your beer that you're paying. So first day of my job, and I had to buy three guys beer. But right. I know that sounds a funny story, but here's what happened. From that door, I suddenly got a great view of humanity and psychology. Now, I know you may sound as weird, but I got to stand on that door, and when people walk up to the doorman, they change. It's like when you turn up for a job. You're not the real person. You know, you're the who that person wants to be. So when you walk up to a doorman, you know, and I'm stood there to look scary because I'm supposed to go in and intimidate and quiet down a post. So I'm not there to look all friendly. I'm not the doorkeeper. I'm the door locker. I'm the one that blocks you from getting in and tells you to behave once you're inside. Right. So you react differently when you walk up to me. So as you're walking up to me, I'm stood there and in my head, I'm playing games. Is this the couple on that first date? Is this a couple celebrating anniversary? Is this a group of girls celebrating a get-together? Is this a group of girls selling a, celebrating a contract or a new job? Is this a bunch of guys looking to be on the pool that night to find a new girl? Is this the kind of guy who's just looking to get in there and stir up trouble? You can tell all of that by the body language. So I started getting really good at this body language. And as this is working out, I would see the guys coming up and be like, hey, guys, what are we celebrating tonight? And they'd be like, oh, my boy got a job. He got a new job. And I'd be like, hey, good for you. Let me get one of the people to make sure you got a good booth. I started communicating with them. Right. You know? And then I realized that if you want to be wealthy, hang around with wealthy people. So who did I start paying attention to? I started paying attention to the, you know, the, the guys and the girls that were spending a bit more money. The girl that owned the club was related to other clubs. They moved me up to some higher class establishments. So now I'm going beyond being the doorman. I'm also becoming like the host and welcoming in and stuff like that. And I remembered, again, one of those pivotal moments. These guys that I had got to know a little bit from being on the door, I was inside, there'd been a bit of trouble, and I was stood by the bar, and the hostess walked over to the booth to these guys and these girls that they had picked up, and they were sat there, And the hostess walked up there with the bar tab in like the little usual leather wallet. And she put it down on the edge and she's like, I hope you had a good night, lads. You know, she gave them the bill and she walked away because they didn't pay her any attention. All right. One of the guys noticed the bill, turned around, saw her walking away, 
leapt up like there was a problem. Now, I first of all thought, all right, what's going on here? Keep my eye on it. And he ran over to her and he said, excuse me, excuse me. And he had the thing in his hand. And she turned around and she said, yes. And he was like, I'm sorry, I didn't see you put it down. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful night. He took the credit card out, shoved it in the wallet and gave it to her. And it made me think that guy didn't need to do that. She was doing her job. She was going to get paid. He would have only been in trouble if he hadn't paid his bill. But more than anything, he was apologetic that he hadn't paid attention to her when she had come to the table. He was very wealthy. Secondly, I hate to break it to anyone, but when you start getting drunk in clubs, clubs do tack on a few extra drinks. They're right. there to kind of milk you, you know? And this guy was so wealthy, in my eyes, that he didn't even check the bar tab. He just threw his card in there. So he was gracious. He was respectful. And he didn't care about how much the bar tab was. And I remember thinking to myself, I want to be that guy. And the next time they turned up, I said to them, hey, boys, you know, what are you doing this week? You know, you're going out and we're good. And they go, ah, we don't know where to go. Now, as I was a doorman and I was getting quite a good name as being a good doorman in the area, I knew where all the clubs were. I knew the celebrities that, because clubs pay celebrities to turn up. Is this up. all still in Hong Kong? This is all still, and this is all within like a six-month period. Got it. So I knew where all the celebrities were turning up to clubs. I was now going to my rich clients going, what are you doing Thursday? Oh. We don't know. Why? I know about a club and I know someone that's turning up. And if it's of interest to you, maybe I can get you in. Would that be of interest? I needed to give affluent people a reason to talk to me. Mm -hmm. That was one of the first lessons. If anyone's out there, you know, trying to make notes or sense out this podcast, whenever you want to get into any kind of value relationship with anyone, bring something to the table that that other person wants. Mm. So I was giving these guys the knowledge, we didn't have Google at the time, of all the best nightclubs with all the celebrities. And then what I would do is I'd say, look, let me make a phone call. I would go back to the door. I didn't have a phone. I'd stand there for 15 minutes. Then I'd go back to them and I'd go, all right, I pull my strings. You guys can go in. It's 200 bucks each. And I would charge them. And the first time I ever did that, they almost raced each other to pay to hmm. get in, to see who could pay first. So I suddenly realized something from this, that rich people don't know everything, okay? Find the problem that you are the cure for, and then most importantly, charge for it. Because people that, people that don't pay, don't pay attention. Hmm. So I learned all of this just from a nightclub. I went from literally getting people into clubs, taking over clubs, started taking over yachts, mansions, and inviting people to it and charging them a premium. I would charge people to come to my parties, $500 to come to my party, and there'd be no food or drink bill once you're inside. Why did I do that? Because you needed a license to sell food and drink in a club. You didn't need a license if you were giving it away. Got it. So by charging it. you at the front, I didn't need the bloody license. Right, right, right. You just charge, yeah, more on the front end. And yeah. no, I love it. But break that, break that all down because now all of a sudden you said you went from just nightclubs to now you're talking about yachts. How did that all come about? Was it through the same connections? How do you then start getting the connections to these yachts? So it, it became 
The, pro- the first problem we've got, and I coach this a lot within, I have, I, a quick plug, I have a, it's free of charge and there's no sell or thing. I have a, a Facebook group called An Entrepreneur's Advantage with Steve Sims. And we have all of these conversations. So everyone should jump in. You should jump into that. Yeah. Everyone should jump into that. It's free. It's great. But it basically, it tries to, I use our Facebook page to get over our problems. And one of the biggest problems, and you hit it on the head, is people don't dream. That's the beauty of your podcast. You're giving people permission to dream. Because if you don't dream it, it can't happen. Right. That's, that's the biggest thing there, right? Okay. So we want to dream. So I wanted to, I had this dream to get to know a hundred rich people. Mm. That was my focus. I did that first of all in the clubs. Okay. Then what I did was I started throwing private rooms and inviting those people into the private rooms. And then it was a case of, Hey, if you like being here and you know, good people bring them in. Okay. So, you know, once I'd got to a hundred rich people, I wanted to know 200 rich people. Once I knew 300 rich people, I could start throwing parties for a hundred rich people. And it would only be the first hundred people that got in. Mm. Okay. And then I would make the room bigger. And so what I did was I, I went after the clients first by identifying what they wanted. And most people wanted a really good time. So I became a great party promoter. And then I was, then it was a case of the clubs were starting to charge me a lease on the club. Okay. Now I looked at my road and I noticed something, and this is, this is again, a nugget for you to write down. Most poor people, and we've all been poor. We know what it's like to be poor. We know that emotion. The beautiful thing about being rich is it actually removes that emotion. Okay. When you're poor, you know what it's like when you see a letter and you go, shit, I hope that's not a red letter. Right. When you're rich, you no longer have that emotion. So believe it or not, the richer you are, the less emotions you have. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. You become okay. immune to so many things. So many you do that removed. Right. As I've always said, if if you've got a problem that money can remove, then you don't have a, a problem. You just have a cash flow issue. Right. Okay. So, so what I did, first of all, and what I've noticed about a lot of entrepreneurs is when they develop a product, the first thing they do is they sell it to the people that are poor. Why? Because we know how they think because mm. nine out of 10 people know what it's like to be poor. Okay. Me, I changed that. I thought to myself, if I'm going to go after someone and I'm going to talk to someone, why don't I talk to someone for $10,000 rather than $10? It's the same type of conversation. Right. It's the same length of conversation. I've just got to find a cure. If you're selling jets, you don't sell jets to someone that can't afford a Corolla. Okay? Right. You find a market. So that's what I did. My first goal wasn't to become a party promoter, wasn't to become a club promoter. It was to get to know many, many, many rich people. And why? Because eventually I would ask one of them for a job. That was my goal. Mm. Now, when the clubs started realizing that I was renting out clubs on the bad nights, the Mondays, the Tuesdays, the Wednesdays, the Sunday nights, they started saying, well, look, we want to cut the bar. You know, we want a percent. Uh, yeah. We want to charge you like 10 grand to rent the room. I was like, bloody hell, you're now starting to eat into my profits. I'm now starting to build up a liability because I have to pay you regardless of whether or not people come along or not. Right. You know? right. But then I noticed something. I, and it's called OPRs other people's relationships, Hmm. okay? I now had a Rolodex of 300 very, very wealthy people, not poor, wealthy people. 
what do wealthy people buy? Nice cars, nice apartments, nice yachts. And the first time I went over to a yacht broker and I said, what kind of yachts you got here for sale? And he told me all these hot and, and I said, you know, what kind of around the five mil, you know, four or five mil range you got? There's been sitting around for like six to 10 months, not been sold. And he showed me these pictures of these yachts. And I said, how would you like it if I stuck a hundred people on that yacht that could pay for it with a credit card without even noticing? So guess what? I got a free yacht to throw my party. Hmm. And it started growing there. I would then, I would throw parties on that yacht and then I would go over to Mercedes or Porsche or, you know, one of those kind of companies. Did it with Cartier, did it with Tiffany, did it with Asprey. And I'd go, hey, how would you like to be in a room with only some of the richest people in the planet that could afford absolutely anything you want? Okay. You supply the pretty girls, shove some dangles and some gem gems on them and have them wander. Would that be of interest to you? Absolutely. Great. For $10,000, you can do it. And you'll be the only jewelry company in there. I was not only selling the people coming in the front row, front door. I was selling people to be there within those. I was getting paid three times for something that was costing me nothing. I love it. And I thought to myself, this is too freaking easy. Right. Yeah, I sure do. So from there, I ended up, again, normal people settle. Normal people go, well, I'm making a bit of money now. Let's not rock the boat. Fuck that. That's not <laughs> what entrepreneurs do. Entrepreneurs go, well, okay, this is here. Therefore, that's my new normal. What's next? Right. So I, I ended up pushing it and going, well, okay, if this can work for, for Dorman in Hong Kong, I wonder if it could work for Ferrari in Monaco. I wonder if it could work for the Kentucky Derby. I wonder if it could work for the Grammys. So I started working for some of the largest events on the planet. In fact, I've just finished this year working with Elton John for eight years on his Oscar party, okay? Wow. Largest Oscar party in the planet. And I took it there. Along the way, these rich people were going, hey, you don't by any chance know anyone out of Guns and Moses, do you? Because, you know, I'd really like to, you know, hang out with someone. And I'd be like, let me see what I could do. Now, the good thing is about having rich people in your Rolodex, there's usually someone that knows someone that knows someone. Facts. Okay. So I was all of a sudden setting up experiences like playing drums with Guns N' Roses, singing on stage with the rock band Journey, going backstage and meeting Andrea Bocelli. And then it was getting bigger and wilder, going down to see the Titanic on the rock bed with James Cameron, going up wow. to the edge of space, um, getting married in the Vatican, closing down museums in, in the academia in Florence, and then having Andrea Bocelli coming in and serenade you while you're eating your pasta in front of Michelangelo's David. Every wow. time I achieved anything, it became the new level of normal. Right. And therefore the new standard of which you should never settle at. So mm. it just grew. I went from doing, and it's all, it's in the book, Blue Fishing. I just decided, how can I see, how can I take it next? How can I go for that? How can I try this? And the funny thing is, the more times you push for that incredible, ostentatious, over-the-top, impossible goal, the more times you achieve it. Wow. How did you know how to price your stuff? Because, oh, you know, you're getting things that, that no one ever experienced before. So all of a sudden you're talking about, you know, shutting down museums. Like, how did you know what to charge people? So our greatest success and growth comes from our greatest failures and, and ruin. 
And the amount of times at the early stage where someone would say, oh, I want to do this. And I'll be like, well, okay, I know he's rich. I know he's not going to, you, you weigh it up in your head. Right. And you go, well, if it was, if it's 10 grand, he's going to be okay with that because he can easily afford 10 grand. If it's a hundred grand, oh, that's a bit too much. I learned very early on that if you ever get to a point where you're arguing the price tag, it's because you failed to demonstrate the value and content in what you're providing. Hmm. That's a very important lesson I learned. It early. is. And I learned that lesson because I would look at it and I'd go, okay, so to meet the racing drivers for Ferrari in Monaco, it would be, and there was a lot of guesstimates. And the amount of times in the early stage, I would go, ah, oh, it's 25 grand. And they'd be like, great, here's your 25 grand. And then, and I remember this lesson from my dad. And then I would go to Ferrari and I'd get the drivers and I'd get access. Suddenly I realized it's 32 grand. I've spent seven grand more right. than what the clients paid me, you know? So you learn how to price by things like, let me get back to you, working out what your liabilities are, working out like 20% give or take could go wrong. So you, you, you get used to it. But I remember once when I was a bricklayer with my dad, I said to my dad, look, I priced it at 300 bucks and you know it's come out at $310. How do I go back to him? And I remember my dad looking at me in the eyes. He said, you don't. He said, you've just learned how to price. Everything that you fail at is education on what not to do. He hmm. said, but the one thing you can never, ever, ever flex on is your word. If you told him it was 300 bucks, it's 300 bucks. If it costs you 400 bucks, you charge him 300 bucks. Right. You can charge the next person more money, but you can never, ever, ever get your word back. And mm. as an East London boy, we were always told that your word is your bond. And right. so Thanks. the amount of times in the early stages where I go 25 grand and, and my wife would be like, you know, we just lost money on this. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm sorry, babe. You know, I, I but as you get bigger and big and you do more and you do more, you've got to start equating that people aren't paying you for what you do. They're paying for how long it's taken you to get into a position to do what you do. That's, that's huge right there. I've just, out of all of everything, I've never, ever heard it, at least put in that way. Well, pleased to help. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it just paints the picture of like doctors and lawyers, right? They go to school for so long, but that's why they charge oh, yeah. premium prices. Right. And so that's, that's a great way to put it for someone who is listening at this right now. And they're trying to figure out where their voice is, but they've been doing this one thing for eight to 10 years. So they feel like an expert, but they don't necessarily know how to price themselves. You got to say, okay, if I've been doing this at the top of my game for the last 10 years, it requires a premium price. Have you ever heard the plumber story? Uh-uh. So there's a guy at home, the wife's gone to work, and uh, he's done something with the washing machine in the basement, and it's broke. And water starts coming around the basement. So he starts trying to bail the water out, and it ain't leaving. And all of a sudden, the water starts getting up to his ankles, and he tries to mop it all up and turn the machine off, and he goes upstairs, comes back downstairs. All of a sudden, the water's getting up to his kneecap. And he's like, shit, I've got water of a plumber, because this is, like, really bad. So he phones up the plumber. The plumber turns up, walks into the room, and he said, look, I've got a problem. And he said, you've got to sort it out. Plumber walks down into the basement. The water's now up to the waist of absolutely everyone. So he looks around the room and he sees his pipe and he goes up to his pipe. He licks his finger and he rubs his finger down the edge of the pipe and then stops. Pulls out his hammer, boink, hits the hammer on the pipe, water stops. So the guy gets out his pad and pen and he writes down there, 
$1,000. And he gives $1,000 to, uh, to the guy to pay. And the guy turns around and goes, dude, what are you talking about? You've been in here for like five minutes. He said, all you did was lick your finger, touch the pipe, and then hit it with a hammer, and then charge me a 1000 bucks." He said, oh, you're looking for the breakdown, aren't you? And he said, yeah, I am. So he writes down a piece of pad, gives it back to him. $1,000, $1 hitting the pipe. $999 knowing where to hit the pipe. Mm. That's what you're paying for. I love it. I love it. That's definitely something that I hope everyone is listening to. And that's definitely something that I, I will implement forever because I think that that is a big deal. A lot of us, we struggle with understanding where our value is, but it's knowing where and how and all of the, the time that we've put into it because time is our most valuable asset, right? And so the things that you've learned now through all of your experiences, I think are super powerful. Is there one experience that out of all of these ones that you've done that even to this day still blows your mind? So I was in Rome and I was actually working with the Vatican and okay. one of my clients, and that's a big deal for a start. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one of my clients actually knew I was there and because uh, I, I told him all and he said to me, hey, I've got to go down to Florence and impress my uh, future mother-in-law and father-in-law. And he said, you know, can you set me up, you know, with a really cool uh, dining experience? Now it was his use of the word dining experience and not restaurant that got me thinking off in a different way. Now, our job is never to give the client what they ask for. Never. is to give them what they lust for and dream of. That's the key. Really wow. getting to the core. So you listen and then provide what they lust for. So I thought to myself, okay, if I was going to be in Florence and I was going to have a dining experience, what would be the most ridiculous, ostentatious, stupid, ridiculous, impossible location ever? Now, if you're in Paris, you do something at the Eiffel Tower. If you're in Washington, you do something at the White House. You know, wherever you are, there's always that one place which is unique just to that one place. Right. So in Florence, it's the only museum outside of Rome that houses Michelangelo's work, and it's the most iconic statue in the world. It's the David, Michelangelo's David. And so I thought to myself, well, hang on a minute. If you're in Florence, the most unique experience, it could not be anywhere else in the world, would be to have dinner at the feet of Michelangelo's David yeah. in a museum completely shut for you at nine o'clock at night. I wonder if I can do that. Right. Now, again, like all entrepreneurs, we go for it. Whether or not it's possible or impossible, it's only impossible until we do it. So <laughs> I contacted them and uh, spoke to them. And... Um, they said yes. And I was absolutely floored that they had said yes. Because in the back of my mind, my subconscious was planning a good location, number two or number right. three or number four. Be your but the, option. Exactly. But the good thing is, if you go 10 miles beyond what the client was asking for, even if you fail and you only go five miles ahead of what they asked for, you're still way beyond what they thought they were going to get. Right. Okay. You can't lose in that, in that game. So right. when I got a yes, I was like, excuse me. You know, I didn't believe that I just got a yes. So 
within one hour of me making a phone call. Now that comes from credibility, authority, then being able to Google you a bit. So it became, again, what you are and who you are and how long it's taking you to be. They were able to do a little bit of Googling on me while I was on the phone and realized the kind of people I was dealing with. And that helped, you know, mm -hmm. never distract from that. And again, that comes down to keeping your word. So they said, yes. And I was like, holy shit, I've got it. The daft thing is I've got it so quickly. I was now in Florence and I'd already got what I needed. And I'm like, damn, I'm here for two days now. What do I do? You know? And again, like all entrepreneurs, you could have settled with having an entire down just for you to have a table of six at the feet of Michelangelo's David. You could have settled for that and it would have been brilliant, but we don't settle. We're you entrepreneurs. And I thought to myself, how could I make this better? Now I've got it. How can I make this more incredible? I'm in a museum. It's very quiet in a museum. Right. So I need some music. Let me get some musicians. Hang on a minute. Who's the world's most famous Italian musician? Andrea Bocelli. Bit of Googling. Realized he lives in Tuscany, just up the road. And I thought, I wonder. So I used one of my connections within the world of music to contact him to find out if he would be willing that afternoon to come out of his house Drive down in the floor. Same day. Same day. Okay. Wow. And he said, yes. He turned up. My clients are eating that pasta at the feet of Michelangelo's David. And I led Andrea Bocelli in front of them to serenade them while they're eating their food. It was one of those moments that I stood there. I looked at where I was. I looked at not only had I been able to gain one of the richest clients on the planet, the gentleman that was in front of him singing, behind that, one of the most famous statues in the world, in one of the most famous cities in the world, I literally was like, I was in shock. I was like, I can't believe I did this. I cannot believe I did this. But I did it because I asked. Wow. So the thing that, that sticks in my mind is, and, and I'm sure somebody else has this question as well. Would you say the number one thing to have in doing situations like this is a lot of money back in you? Or are you, do you have to be a damn good storyteller and persuader? Because for you to go get some of these people, right? And, and that's just powerful in itself. So was it the money like Basically, the question that I'm asking is, can money solve anything? Or is it really that you have to paint a picture so vivid that when you're talking to stars like that and you're talking about Elton John, it no longer is about the money. It's really about the vision and why they should do whatever it is that you're asking. So if I, if I said to you, hey, I want you to come and have to come and meet some of my clients at a dinner table, how much is it going to cost me? Yeah. Well, if, if I'm Elton John that's money's not really an object. It is. And this is the point. And it's a bad object. You see, the second you phone up Elton John and go, Hey, I'd like you to meet my clients. How much does it cost me? You become a commodity. You become a purchasable item. You become a prostitute. You right. know, no one wants that. If you want anyone of power, any location, any person of influence, of power, of integrity to hang up on you super quick, just ask him how much is it going to cost me? Hmm. Okay. So like the academia, you now at the end of the day, I'm not, I'm not being blase about this. At the end of the day, you've got to have a checkbook that can pay the fee. Okay. But you want to grab the engagement and interest and commitment first. That has bugger all to do with money. 
So when I contacted the academia, I said, hey, my name's Steve Sims. You don't know who I am, but I want to tell you about a dream that I had. My client wanted to do this. And I thought, where is the most quintessential place in Florence? And I couldn't think of anywhere else other than you. And I've done some amazing things, but I want this to be the dream that you dream of dreaming. I want this to be something that someone says, I can't believe this happened. I want to wake up at two o'clock in the morning in 12 years time and go, are you kidding? I had a dinner at the feet of Michelangelo David. Will you help me make that dream come true? Just That's ask. how I poised it. So what it. you do is you get them involved, captured in your dream. You paint it, you color it, you give them the dream. And you get them to commit. Now, you've got to understand that there's going to be a fee for the rental. So you've got to be, you know, you don't want to be, oh, and could you do it for free? You know, you don't want to be that person. You've got to understand that there's got to be a price in the back. So you've got to know that you've got a hefty checkbook in the background. But the bottom line of it is first, you gain the commitment and engagement way, way, way before you ever get the, uh, the fee. I'll give you an example. When I did the Vatican, the Vatican wanted to, they, they, we were going to get a couple married in the Vatican. And after the event, now I, I won't go into the pricing, but let's just say I did rather well on that, getting someone married in there. Right. They charged me for the room. Now they had not told me about this at the beginning. And so when I suddenly heard that I was going to get an invoice for being charged for one of the one of the uh, rooms within the Vatican to hold the ceremony, I'm thinking to myself, my God, I didn't even equate that in the price. I didn't even think about that. I hadn't it hadn't been spoken about. I hadn't been notified. When I got the invoice, when it turned up, I crapped myself. I thought to myself, yeah, Can you tell us what the invoice was? When I opened it up, I thought it was a million euros. And I had a panic attack. And my wife saw me literally go into a panic attack and she picked up the letter thinking, what the hell is this? And she looked at me, she went, are you kidding? And I went, we don't have a million euros. I didn't equate for that. She went, it's not a million, it's a hundred euros. You know, 80 bucks. And I'm like, what? Because technically it's a public location. So right. it's only, it's a, I had completely ignored the fact. So when this came, it scared the hell out of me. So right. you've always got to have the, the bits behind you. But so that was one of my terrifying moments. Oh, man, I love it. So many really dope stories. One thing that I'm wondering is if someone wants to start a business like this right now or blaze your path and they say, well, shit, I'm not going to Hong Kong to start as a bouncer to try to figure out where I can find these people <laughs> at the rich and the famous. Right. And I don't even necessarily want to move to Hollywood. Like, how could they go out and start finding the clients to try to solve these problems for? All right. Brilliant question. First answer is, what are you solving? You see, gone are the days of you selling anything. The whole, the whole kind of always be closing. That's, that's crap. That's bullshit. That's dead as a dodo, okay? Solve the problem. Like with my coaching, I solve someone's problem. With my Facebook group, I solve people's issues. With my speakeasy events, I solve the issues that they have within their business. If I can solve a problem then I'm, I'm leading with value. There just happens to be a price tag in the back. 
Okay. So first of all, ask yourself the question. Don't look for the client. Identify clearly and clinically what is the problem that you solve. Then go and find those people that you suspect have that problem. Let's say engineer and you, you realize that most people can't spell. Okay. And you've got this program that whatever you type will be changed to, to make you sound smarter. Okay. And you go online and you go, hey, how many times have you typed something in your head? It sounds great, but on text, you sound like an idiot. With this program, try to find people with the problem that you create the solution for. Push, push, push the solution. Push this, um, what the problem is and then push the solution. That's how you start identifying that there's a market. And then you get people to start referring you. The, the beautiful thing now is you don't have to go to Hong Kong. This can all happen on a virtual world. If you've got a concept for a new company, don't buy the company, trademark the name, build a beautiful website. Go on a Facebook and just go, hey, have you ever had this problem? Go on LinkedIn and go, have you ever had this problem? I've got a solution. I'm looking for five people that I can validate it works for. And the only thing I'm going to look for you out of is a referral and to use you as a case study. You've now got real testimonials, real referrals, and give them a six-month you know, case study. And at the end of the six months, go, hey, if you want to continue, you've got, I've got to charge you. But because you were a case study, I'll only charge you 50%. Hmm. I love it. We're, I we're, love in a, it. we're in a great world. You know, you can put an idea out there today, you know, doggy hair products. You know, hey, have you ever thought your dog's got bad hair? Why don't you take this shampoo and have great hair? If no one was, if no one responds, if no one answers, don't do it. Right. If 20 people respond, then give it free to the first five people as long as they put a testimony on a video together. You know? I love it. It's very, very easy to create a business. A friend of mine, Dan Fleischman. Uh, he talks about this all the time. We had Dan on the show. Shout out to Dan. Yeah. Dan's a solid boy. Love Dan. Talk to me about as you started to, to be on your journey of starting these companies, did you ever have a mentor or somebody like that that really helped? Because it seems like you've always innovated. One, you've never settled, which we all can understand why. We understand your mindset. But was there anybody who helped to escalate escalate that mindset? Or was it always just trial and error for you and, and pure personal passion? In the early stages, it was trial and error. I am where I am because I screwed up and failed probably way more times than most people watching this. And failure has never bothered me. Elon Musk said to me once that people laugh at you before they applaud. Okay. Damn. And so that was always very powerful to me. What I found was that as I got, how do we say this without sounding precocious? As I got more known as the people that I started working with and being able to be called friends, they actually started clearing up a lot of the stuff that I would do. They would look at me and they would say, well, how are you doing that? And I'd be like, well, I do this, this, and they go, well, why don't you miss out those first few bits or the, that middle bit because it'll make it easier for you. So I started listening to everyone and I ended up working for people like, you know, Tony Robbins, Jay Abraham, and these kind of uh, people that I could then speak to. I remember when I, uh, I was with Tucker Max, and um, Tucker Max said, hey, you thought about doing a book? And I went, no, should I? He knows how to write books. So he got me on the path of writing Bluefish and the art of making things happen. Now it's an international bestseller. When the contract came through for that book, 
I went to Jay, Jay Abraham. So I've always been very open at reaching out to people who excel in that business. I would never go to Jay Abraham to ask his, ask his ideas on, you know, playing basketball. You know, I would never do that because he can't play basketball, you right. know, but he does know how to write a book. He does know how to grow speaking programs. And so that's the mentor I go to. So I have a lot of people around me now that I can go to Joe Polish. You know, I can go to these different people and ask them questions and get my information. And the beautiful thing is you don't need to know those people. You can gain that information from listening to your podcast and listening to geniuses like Dan Fleischman. Oh yeah, I love it. You've you've met so many influential and great minds. Is there one story or actually let's say this, is there one quote that you heard that always have resonated with you and that you live life by one of these principles? So we're getting to the end of the show, so right. I'm going to probably use this as the finale because I think it's fitting. Probably one of the biggest biggest lumps of metal in the planet that I knew was my dad and not the sharpest tool in the shed but he was a, a big big Irish boy and I remember walking down the road with him and I couldn't have been any older than 15 years old I was still at school so I couldn't have been older than 15 and we're walking down the road and this guy to say chain smoke was an understatement he would be smoking one cigarette while the other one would literally be in his hand ready to just quickly change over Okay, he was he was a, a chain smoker beyond belief. And we're walking down the road and he's got one hand with a cigarette in it. He's smoking the other one. He picks it up. He lights the other one, puts it in. So for now, for the next few seconds, until he's filled his hand up with another cigarette waiting, he's got nothing in his hand. He takes the cigarette out and we're walking down the road and he puts his hand on my shoulder. No eye contact, still moving. And he says, son. No one ever drowned by falling in the water. They drowned by staying there. Mm. He takes his hand off me, continues with a cigarette, gets another one out and carries on walking. That hit me at the age of 15. And I was like, what the hell is that about? You know, and I was so confused. I was like, is he just swallowed a fortune cookie or something? What the hell is he going on about? I was stationary. He had carried on walking. And even today, when I get in trouble, where I lose money on a bad deal, where I get involved in a bad relationship, where something toxic appears that I first thought was great that's now detrimental, I realize it's my choice to stay in there and drown or get out. And so it. that has probably been the single statement that will stay with me for the rest of life and probably even shove on my gravestone. Man, that's a great, great way to end it. The last question that I have for you is there's somebody out there that is very inspired by your journey other than me, which I'm very, very inspired by your journey, your mindset, your wisdom. But they have that little voice in their head and that little voice says that they're not strong enough, they're not smart enough, or maybe they just don't have enough resources. What's the one thing that you would say to that person to get them to just take action? Listen to them. That that's that's the key. You you gotta you gotta listen to that person because that person there is challenging you. Mm. Okay. If you've got someone on your shoulder going, you can be great, you can be wonderful, you can do anything. There's no advice there, there's no strategy there. But when they're sitting there going, you haven't got the resources, 
Well, okay, what resources do I need? You're not tall enough. Okay, how do I get taller? Those are the people that are giving you the problems. If someone gives me a problem, then my mind can work towards a solution. So that little person on the edge of your shoulder is not actually there to neg you out. It's there to fuel you to be proven wrong. And if there's a friend of yours that's saying this, that ain't your friend. And it's your job now to prove that you can do it and prove that they're inadequate to be able to. Love it. But there you have it, Dream Nation. This has been a phenomenal episode. But just as my brother said, you have to take action. You have to have strategy. Otherwise, it'll only merely be a fantasy. We'll see you on the next one. That's all we got for this episode. Thank you for sticking around. That truly means a lot to me. And hopefully that means that we delivered massive value on this one. If you haven't already, the way that you could say thank you to myself and the team is just by heading over to iTunes and leaving a review and a rating. That's what iTunes loves to see. That's how we get out there even more. And I would definitely, definitely be grateful for it. I know the team would as well. Do me a favor and head on over to dreamnationpodcast.com. That's where you're going to be able to find all of the resources that we talked about in today's episode, as well as more exclusive content. And you'll also be able to sign up to our email list where we have more exclusive content. And we always love to hear the feedback from you all because you're our tribe. So remember, in the dream we trust, we'll see you on the flip side. 